0: We good. Okay, there. Thanks. We're wrapping up our summer series. I think there's just a couple weeks left. I forget exactly how many more. Uh, this will be the last time I'm teaching, so I don't. I've lost track of what else is left. Uh, afterwards, I think Joe will be doing one. And um, so anyway, it's been an encouragement to me. I trust it's been to you. Um, just remembering that we are not the first ones to walk this earth, and, uh, and and depending on how God has the history planned out, we may not be the last ones to walk this earth either. So there may be generations yet behind us we just don't know um, but we build on the successes and failures of those who've gone before us and I think this morning we have a real great chance to learn some insights from a, a man who was a scientist and not a, a pastor um, or a missionary or anything like that but just a and in one sense just a regular person just like the rest of us but I think the greatest lesson we can we can learn from from his life is uh, just to learn to be watching for God in creation and uh, to to see his handiwork everywhere and to learn to stop and to listen and to uh, look at the world around us, something we, we don't tend to do in our, our rushed and hurried age when there's always something we can, another screen we can flip on or uh, something else to listen to or whatever like that. But uh, we'll, we'll get into his life here this morning. Um, I will say that since I've got the opportunity to put a free advertisement in for uh, our fall <coughs> semester. Coming up, I'll be teaching um, on, on Union with Christ. while we'll using Sinclair Ferguson's uh, video series. Uh, it's something that's become very, very important and precious to me in, in recent weeks and months. So I won't be the only one teaching, so I can't twist your arm. But uh, if if you haven't made up your mind, uh, I believe this will be a revolutionary— it, it really could revolutionize your Christian life in a way as it's already started to do for me. So uh, understanding who we are in Christ and finding our identity. So uh, I will just put that plug in— um, and encourage you. Uh, I, I've I've never been so anxious to start a series, and uh, that'll be starting shortly after Labor Day. So, okay, commercials over, and uh, we'll get into um, our, our our lesson this morning. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, things the chance to gather. Thank you for the beautiful weather yesterday, and uh, the opportunity to gather this morning with your people. We thank you for uh, the con- the continued freedom that we have to meet here unmolested, and. Um, pray that we would seize the day, that we would take these opportunities while it's easy to come to church and while it's easy to gather, uh, that we would just fill our minds and our hearts with your truth. Because the day may come when it's harder to get access to what you've said, harder to get as- access to good teaching. And so I pray that you would give us understanding today and draw us closer to yourself uh, through the life of, of this man. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I already said briefly, one of the things that I see in Carver's life is his seeing God in nature and learning to slow down and to listen. And this is really a, a key aspect of, of Carver's life. Um, you can just as a quote here, he says, his letters are sprinkled throughout with science, with biblical creationism, with uh, a desire to just know God and and all that he sees and does. And this is a quote that he writes to a friend later in life where he quotes uh, from the book of Job. And you can see that. It says, I can't read the back screen. My eyes are a little too. I'll read it from the front screen here. Ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. And so learning to take that literally, to go to the ant and be wise, to study creation and learn lessons from it. You can go to the next slide. So uh, George Washington Carver, uh, he picks up the last name Carver because a man named Mose Carver and, and his Carver and his wife Susan were the owners of Carver's mother. Carver was born into slavery, although slavery ended before he had any knowledge of it. Um, the Carvers lived in this little tiny southwestern corner of Missouri, which we had a privilege to visit uh, about six years ago, so some of the slides from today will be from one of our family trips. Um, but the, the Carver Farm is, it was located near Kansas, which is a very violent, uh, one of these border states. There was a lot of violence during the Civil War, and that will have an important effect on George's early life. He writes later, he says, Mr. Carver was the owner of my mother. My father was the property of Mr. Grant, who owned the adjoining plantation. However, he never knew his father. His father was crushed to death in a logging ox cart accident shortly after George's birth. Um, but that wasn't the only loss that he had early in life. I oh, can go to the next slide. Um, this little outside list is the, uh, and the the top right there. That's the sh- shape and the um, the form and the location of a little log shanty that he, he grew in, he lived in for the first weeks, maybe months of his life. Uh, because he never knew his mother either. Um, as an infant, maybe a few weeks old, right at the end of the Civil War, uh, some. Border riders came through and kidnapped his mother, kidnapped him as an infant and his sister. Uh, Mr. Carver was able to save James and hide him away, his older brother James. But um, Mr. Carver sent out a, a rescue search party. They never found his mother or his sister. They found George basically just laying in a field wrapped up in a blanket with a whooping cough. And, and that, was, um, that was all that he knew. He never knew his, his, his actual family other than his, his brother George or his brother Jim. Um, He said, my sister, my mother, and myself were kukluked and sold in Arkansas, and there are now so many conflicting reports I don't even know if they're dead or alive. I was brought back nearly dead with whooping cough with the report that mother and sister were dead, although some said they sold them afterwards. So that's his early life, um, never knowing his family, never knowing his true mother and father. So next slide there, slide four, uh, we see... He moved from that little log shanty up into the house where Mose and Susan lived, and they raised him as their own. Uh, Mose and Susan didn't have children of their own, and this is not the first family, the childless family, who has a huge impact on George's life as he grows up. Uh, they give him what little education they know, they have, and they raise him as their own child, George and James. Uh, 240 acres of fields and forests, which just predispose, and George already has an actual inclination for nature, but he was just free to roam the fields and the forests, and all 240 acres have been preserved for National Park there in southwestern Missouri. George is a rather sickly boy, so he doesn't do much field work. He spends a lot of time in the home. He learns a lot of domestic things like knitting and cooking and doing laundry, and this, thing, and this will be a part of his life throughout his life. He said if he had leisure time for other activities, he would knit or crochet or do other kinds of what he calls fancy work, but he said I literally, literally lived in the woods and I hunger to know everything, and slide five there. Uh, this is a view of the the, the area, uh, the, the national park, where his, his birthplace is located. Um, he enjoyed games like baseball, running, jumping, swimming, and checkers. And he said, from a child, I had an inordinate desire for knowledge, especially music and painting and flowers and the sciences, algebra being one of my favorite studies. But day after day, I spent in the woods alone in order to collect my floral beauties. So he just loved plants from his earliest childhood. And he put them in a little garden near a little uh, uh, near a little corner of the house, and he he created a little garden out of a brush pile and put the garden inside, he said, because back in those days, it was considered um, foolish to waste time on flowers. Uh, But he just loved flowers. And he said, many are the tears I've shed because I would break the roots or flowers off some of my pets uh, while removing them from the ground. And strange to say, all sorts of plants succeeded to thrive under my touch until I was styled the plant doctor, and plants from all over the county were brought to me for treatment. But at this time, I'd never even heard of botany, and I could hardly read so God gave him some natural gifting and a, a, a prime place to grow up. His faith will become key to who is, next slide. His faith will become key to who he is, so much so that the National park service doesn 't hide it uh, it 's just like you can 't deny it so throughout the, the, as you walk through there there 's all kinds of signs and, and representations of how important george 's faith was to him and This is a slide that says his first prayer. He says around the age of eight, what he calls he says a dear little white boy." was over playing on a Saturday, and he told me about Sunday school. And I said, well, what's the Sunday school? And the boy told him, he said, oh, we, we sing hymns and, and, and we pray prayers. And he said, what's prayer? And he said, I don't remember what the boy told me, but he, re- he told me about prayer. And I was so interested that after he left, I don't remember what I said, but I prayed and it felt so good, I, I did it a couple more times. And that was, he says, his conversion. And we might think that's pretty thin for a conversion story because he doesn't remember the details, but his life will show that there's life. Uh, so we don't look to our conversion story we don't say like well this happened so therefore I know it's like no the fruit is there in his life so that's why we know he truly followed Christ next slide there uh, this is one of the slides at the, at the museum there it says um, Carver thought his work in science and his faith in God worked together he believed that the great creator made the world and that by learning more about the world people would learn more about the creator I do love the things that God has created and he wanted everyone to know, so he wrote and talked about them. People could see he was sincere in his beliefs. Of course, we have to add this little caveat: some people liked what he said, and others did not. You know, just that was what he thought. Uh, go to the next slide. Eight there. Um, this is he. He loved to paint. He was a gifted at painting, and his love for creation and creator grows and matures here as he lives with the Carvers. At one point in time, he will later in life he'll talk about seeing a just beautiful sunset, and he used the phrase Rembrandtian the colors that came through the window. And he said, I, as he just c- came back to his senses and, and realized that he was sitting there in his house, he said, I, I said, oh, God, I thank thee for such a direct manifestation of your goodness, majesty, and power. So he, he only gets the basic education with the carvers, and there's no schools nearby. So at the age of eight or nine, he walks eight miles to the town of Neosho, and he's able to go to school there. He's taken in by uh, uncle and Aunt Mariah Watkins, another family without children who take him in and raise him for a couple of years as their own son. Um, she gives Mariah Watkins gives him a Bible. What's that? Okay, slide. Eight. Okay, that's good. We're, we're, number eight's good. All right, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, number nine. Yeah, I can see up in the corner. Again, this is a display at the museum. This is his Bible up in the corner, uh, top right corner there. She gives him a Bible, and he continues to read and grow in his knowledge. He does chores. He, throughout his life, he doesn't want a free ride. He wants to earn to work his keep. And so he does chores as he's learning there with the Watkins family. But after a couple of years, um, he decides to head west. You can Go one more slide there. Oops, sorry. I don't know how they got in there. <laughs> uh, uh, Philip and Amy having a Junior Ranger day at the par- the national park. Um, but yeah, so daily communing with God as he has time in the woods. He said, "All my life, I've I better read up from over here. Risen regularly at four, and I've gone into the woods and talked with God." Because he didn't just meditate on the, the scriptures, which he did, but he learned to look at nature and creation. It makes me think of the hymn, which is, Went Through the Woods and Forest Glades I Wander. And that's what he spent much of his life doing. Next slide, 12. Um, throughout the park, you have these little, they have these little sayings, these little uh, brick sayings with his words printed on them. And uh, on this one, it says, how can I make sure I'm on the right path? It says, in all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So it's just really exciting as a Christian to, to see his faiths so are prominently displayed. And it just, it, it comes out in everything he says and does. Next slide there. Another humorous thing. Modern day warnings, you know, be careful. There are peanuts in the facility, and you can't drink the water because by modern standards, this is the, the spring that George drank from. By modern standards, it's no longer potable water. So I just saw that it spoke there. Um, at the age of fourteen, he begins. Oh, you can go to the next one there. Um, these are these little pins are the places he lives in the first thirty years of his life. He just he's like a nomad. So at the age of ten, he hitchhikes or grabs a ride with a family, sitting out to Kansas, out to Fort Scott, and he goes out there for a few years and he gets some more schooling. And then he bounces around from city to city, sort of paying his own way. And he doesn't graduate at eighteen. I'm not sure what age he graduates at, but he keeps attending school, floating from town to town. One town he's there, and he sees a lynching of a black man, and he says, I need to get out of town, and he does. And so it, it's somewhat of a traumatic experience, some of the things he has and experiences. But uh, when he was there in Fort Scott, had said he lived behind in a shed, and then he lived under the back steps of a home, um, just making the best he could, uh, but he had this thirst for knowledge. He goes to, next slide, 14, 15, yeah. You can leave it there for a minute. He has lots of moves. Uh, various towns, various schools. After graduating from high school, he finds out his brothers died of smallpox. Um, and he, said, be, he says, being conscious as never before that I was alone. I trusted God, and I pushed on ahead. He goes to business college in Kansas City, and he learned shorthand and typing and doing laundry, and he planned to get a job as a stenographer, but he just had a thirst for knowledge, and he couldn't give it up, and he had to keep going to school. So he goes to a school called Highland College, but then when he shows up and the president sees that he's black, he turns him away. But he says others in the the area are kinder to him, and they give him laundry to do, and he does, you know, starts a little business, keeps himself eating by washing other people's clothes. Then it's off to western Kansas to homestead for a while. He becomes a homesteader. He spends more time with plants and learning how to garden and to farm. Then back to Iowa, where he's the head cook in a hotel, so he's just bouncing around, bouncing around. But again, God brings another family into his life in, in Iowa. Um, it's the Milholland family, and he's visiting a white church one evening, and they're singing, he's singing, and they notice she's attracted to his fine singing voice. There are some actual recordings of his voice. He has a very, very high-pitched voice, which makes us people wonder what if he had a medical condition, uh, but almost the soprano sort of voice when he speaks. But anyway, this, this drew him, this drew Mrs. Mulho- Milholland's attention with his voice, and they invite him to their home, and they welcome him in, and they encourage him in his art and his music. And they encourage him to go to art school, and they help him to go to Simpson College in, in, in Indianola for art. And so he goes over there, and he will say, late, he will write later to the Mill Hollands who become lifelong friends. He said, "You'll never forget what you were to my life. You, of course, will never know how much you have done for a poor colored boy who was drifting here and there as a ship without a rudder. You helped me to start a right, and what the Lord has in His kindness and wisdom permitted me to accomplish is doing a very great measure to your real genuine Christian spirits." How I wish the world was full of such people. What a different world it would be. So don't minimize the impact you can have on somebody who's just passing through your life. You never know how much that might have a a future impact on them. And so these Hollands, we wouldn't have a George Washington Carver as we know him without this family who took took him in. Uh, So he he sent off to Simpson College, and he... um, he's really interested in art and so he paints and he does these paintings and one of his paintings is actually accepted at the world's fair for as an honorable mention could you just jump ahead I think I'm off on of my slide count okay yeah you can stay there so he goes to the Simpson college and he said after paying my entry fees I had nothing left I had 10 cents worth of cornmeal and I spent five cents on beef suet just a real a beef fat I lived for a month at college on prayer beef suet and cornmeal But by the time I was there long enough, they knew I did laundry, people started bringing their clothes to me and I kept washing their clothes and I was able to pay my college bills and feed myself. But Bodice forbid me to let anyone know I had a need, um, so I just did that. He was encouraged when he got to Simpson College. Again, just a a reflection on where his heart is. He said, I am glad the outlook for the upbuilding of the kingdom of Christ is so good. We're having a great revival here. 40 seeking last night and 25 arose for prayers at the close of the service. But his teacher, Miss Etta Budd, She sees that he has a love for plants, and she says, you know, I know you love to paint. Have you ever thought about going to agriculture school and studying botany? And he hadn't, and so this is what launches him into going to Iowa State College for Agriculture, and he begins his training in agriculture. When he switches to agriculture, he goes to a different college, uh, but one of the first things he writes to the Milhollins is his concern. He says that, I don't like it as much as Simpson because the means for growing as a Christian are not so good here as at Simpson. He said, oh, how I wish the people would wake up from the lethargy and come out soul and body for Christ. He has helpful professors. Although it's a time, this is the Jim Crow era, there's a lot of negativity going on. There's a lot of harshness. But there's still these little bright lights, these, these people, white people, if you want to use the word, who give um, encouragement to him. And, and the, the one professor could see that, you know, the dorms are overcrowded and we have a black student. And he's not real popular. And he says, hey, come stay in my office. And so he has these, God gives him these little helps along the way uh, to give him a place to stay. And years later, he finally remembered many by name who had helped him at this college. He gets a Bachelor of Science degree in 1894, a Master of Science degree in 1896. I noticed that in 1895, he was making plans to go to Chicago, and he had actually, actually had, had intentions to going to Moody Bible Institute for a year. I don't believe that actually happened, but that was where his mind was. After getting his degree at, AIM, at, at um Iowa State College, he begins to be a professor there, and he's teaching, and he teaches some famous people, one of, late, late, one of which later becomes the vice president under Franklin Roosevelt. And he's just very thankful for the, the opportunities and the blessings that he has there in Iowa. But in 1896, he gets a letter from Booker T. Washington down in Alabama, who is the professor and has started the Tuskegee Institute. You may know the Tuskegee Airmen from World War II, And this is the college that Booker T. Washington started to help young black people try to get somewhere in life after slavery was over. And Booker T. Washington writes to him and says, I can't offer you money, position, or fame. Money and position you already have. The last, fame, from the place you now occupy you will no doubt achieve. I ask you now to give up these things and I offer you in their place work, hard work, hard, hard work. The challenge of bringing people from degradation, poverty, and waste to full manhood. And Carver responds, I will be glad to do all I can through Christ who strengthens me to better the condition of our people. So at every, to everyone's shock and surprise, he resigns his position at a prestigious school and goes to this forsaken little developing school without many resources down in the countryside of Alabama. And he will stay there for the rest of his life. He goes there in 1896, and he lives till 1943, so over 50 years, 50 about 50 years of teaching at uh, Tuskegee. The first 15 years there, he's the head of the Agriculture Department, but he's not that great. We talked about Stonewall Jackson, Thomas Jackson a few weeks ago, who wasn't the greatest teacher. Well, Carver wasn't also, wasn't especially, not a lot, a lot of his students didn't care for his teaching style, and that wasn't his best fit. But after a while, and there was tension. I won't get, well, we won't spend a lot of time on his life at Tuskegee, But um, there was a lot of tension between – some tension grew between him and and, and Booker T. Washington, and Washington sort of said, well, I'm going to let you go, and uh, he kind of resigned. So he stepped out of his his, um, position um, as a teacher and became the head of agricultural research, and this is really where he finds that he's he's best suited for. Okay, the next slide there, 18. So he becomes Mr. Peanut. I don't know how many of you know that peanuts don't grow on trees. They grow as roots. Um, but he, he grows them because they're a legume and legumes have the ability to take nitrogen from the air and there's bacteria in the roots and they can capture, they help the plant to capture back nitrogen from the air and put the nitrogen down in the soil. And so they are really, really good at building soil. So you need less fertilizer if you have poor soil growing beans and other legumes helps to like peanuts helps to, to give life back to the soil. And so Washington says, well, this is good for the soil, but there's not much of a market for peanuts. So what can we do to create good soil conditions and create um, a market for these peanuts that people will be growing because it's good for their soil? So he kind of becomes known as Mr. Peanut before Jimmy Carter, I guess. Um, And he does lots of work with various crops, peanuts, soybeans, sweet potatoes, and, and, and helps people to become better farmers. In 1921, he's asked to testify before Congress, and this is quite shocking. Think of where our our country was racially in 1921, but he's asked to speak before Congress, and at first they give him 10 minutes, but after 10 minutes they said, no, just keep going, keep going. We want to hear what you have to say, and he talks for over two hours. And this sort of launches his fame, makes him famous. He says to Congress in 1921, if you go to the first chapter of Genesis, we can interpret very clearly, I think, what God intended when he said, behold, I have given you every herb that bears seed. To you it shall be for food. And he's talking on behalf of the peanut growers. He said, I learned about peanuts from the Bible. And, the, and Congress says, well, you know, does the Bible talk about peanuts? And he says, no, but it tells about the God who made the peanut. And I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he did. So it's, this is just a real down-to-earth, intuitive, you know, if God's really talking about true life here, then we can find out things about God from the scriptures and from the things that he's made. His fame gets him letters from all over the place. Uh, He gets visited by Franklin Roosevelt. He's offered jobs by Henry Ford and Edison. He even gets letters from Gandhi and Stalin. Um, I'm not sure what Stalin wanted, but um, (laughs) I'm sure he had ulterior motives somewhere. Uh, Slide 19. Um, He has a real heart for young people. And this is, he, he never marries or has a family of his own. But he has a desire to teach young people about scripture and about science. So in 1907 he starts teaching a Bible class and others gathered others had gathered the class and said, you know, Professor Carver, will you teach us? And after 3 months there was 6 or 7 in the class to start with and after about 3 months so it was up to about 114. Carver said we started the Bi- the first book of the Bible and we tried to explain the creation story in the light of natural and revealed revel- religion and geological truths. We used maps, and charts, and plants and geological specimens to illustrate the work. In 1920, he speaks at the YMCA. This is he's he's known for his modesty and his humility and some of his humor. As he's introduced at the YMCA one time, he says, I look forward to introductions as opportunities to learn something about myself. People will play up. This is Mr. Carver who does this or who's done that or who says this. And it's like, Really, I guess, I guess I do. Um, so he, he likes he likes to he really cares and has a heart for these young people but he next slide 20 there um, his work as a scientist um, I read an interesting article as I was doing some research here um, talking about MythBusters, um, that maybe not everything he accomplished in life was as long lasting or as important as it was made out to be one of his first biographies maybe played things up a little bit and everybody else read that biography and just carried it on and And I think there's some truth to the fact that they said that the black community was looking for heroes in a time when they were really oppressed. And not that he wasn't a hero, but maybe he didn't quite, his his achievements weren't quite as high as uh, as they were made out to be. Um, There were supposedly 300 products he made from peanuts, but he never wrote anything down. And he never wrote down any of his recipes or any of his concoctions or any of his lab results. He didn't take notes. And so there was a lot of like, what did they actually do? so it's not the discount. I mean, he did truly develop some products, but they said, well, you can also do that with this product and it's a whole lot easier to use this raw material and you know, we could do all these things with peanuts, but it's cheaper to just not use peanuts and use something else. So a lot of what he does doesn't become commercially viable. It doesn't get, become really long lasting. A lot of what he promoted had already been mentioned by other people before. Um, but I just don't, don't want to minimize the fact that he was a noble person. Uh, but the thing I appreciate, I think, about him the most is his connection with nature and, 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 and God. Um, he referred to his laboratory as God's little workshop. And he, um, he, has a, he takes a strong stand for Bible and creation. The New York Times in 1924 wrote an editorial sort of scorning him because he talked about, I just go into the workshop, I don't take my notes, I just go in there and I wait for God to show me something or tell me something. And of course, in very living, even in the 1920s, 100 years ago, it's still a very scornful age in, in academia towards God and towards creation. But he's mocked for his beliefs, and he he goes to this long list of listing all the books. He said, "You know, I've got a bachelor's degree, I've got a master's degree. Here's all the books. He literally lists all the books. On I, I, I'm not. It's not that I don't have the training. It's just that I believe that there's something else that I can rely on to take my training and add to it. So it's not a a substitute for education. You know, we don't want to be dumb Christians. And we don't want to sit somewhere and wait for some." something to fall out of the sky, we work hard, we labor at our fields of industry, whether we're you know, electricians or uh, computer software people or whatever it might be. You put that energy in, but then you say, God, now give me insight, give me understanding. And so as a response to this uh, negative editorial from the New York Times, he writes to the New York Times, a letter to the editor, and uh, some of the excer- excerpts from that, he said, I regret exceedingly that such a gross misunderstanding should arise as to what I meant by divine inspiration. Inspiration is never at variance with information. In fact, the more information you have, the greater will be the inspiration. Paul, the great scholar, says in Second Timothy two fifteen, "Study to show yourself approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." And again, Paul says, he's preaching to the New York Times. Again, he says in Galatians 1:12, "For I neither received it of man nor was I taught, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ." Many other equally strong passages could be cited, but these two are sufficient to form a base around which to cluster my remarks. I'm a graduate of, and he goes through his, 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 some sounds like, sort of sounds like Paul in second Corinthians 11 or, or even in Philippians three, where he says, here's my resume. Here's what I could boast in, but I'm not going to do that. But just so you know that I'm not just, you know, in the woods somewhere with my Bible and my imagination, I have these degrees. These are my professors. These are the people I've taught. And I get all the modern publications, the science publications, um, but he says, there are scientists to whom today the world is merely the result of chemical forces or material electrons. I do not belong to this class. I fully agree with Reverend so-and-so, Bishop of Colorado, and a little pamphlet he's referred to. Um, I defy anyone who has an open mind to read this leaflet through and, th- through and then deny that there is such a thing as divine inspiration. If this is not inspiration and information from a source greater than myself, or greater than anyone any of them has wrought to the present time, kindly tell me what it is. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Science is simply the truth. And that's what he believed. Slide 21 there. This is writing to another pastor friend after the same editorial. He said, I did feel very badly for a while, not that the cynical criticism was directed at me, but rather at the religion of Jesus Christ. Dear brother, I know that my Redeemer liveth. I believe that through the providence of the Almighty, it was a good thing. Since the criticism was made, I've had dozens of books, papers, periodicals, magazines, and letters from friends in all walks of life. And so he believes that the, the attack on him was actually turned out for the better because more uh, information was able to be shared. Uh, we can go to the next slide, 22. This is my lifetime study of nature and its many phases leads me to believe more strongly than ever in the biblical account of man's creation as found in Genesis 127. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, he created them. Next slide there 23 how I long for each one to walk and talk with the great creator through the things he has created how I thank God every day that I can walk and talk with him just last week I was reminded of his omnipotence majesty and power through a little specimen of mineral sent me for analysis I've dissolved it and purified it made conditions favorable for the crystals to grow and before my very eyes a beautiful bunch of sea green crystals have formed and alongside them a bunch of snow white ones marvel of marvels how I wish I had you in God's little workshop for a while How your soul would be thrilled and lifted up. So it's a it's a reflection on seeing God in the little things of life, and I think that there is we need this today. We really do. We live in the we live in the information age, and yet we know so little. We know so little about creation. We've lost the basics because we're so we either we're we're so specialized or we're so distracted. Uh, We're so entertained. And, and when God says, go to the ant and learn from her, he's not just talking about the ant. He's saying, like, go to all the rest of creation and learn from creation and learn to listen. So I want to go to this next slide and kind of put some mystery in your mind here for a second. Some practical application with a question mark what do a, a central air unit, street lights, a pair of earbuds, and ant killer have to do with anything or have, have anything to do with, with our life today? I want you to stare at that for a minute. I'm not, I'm not expecting you to, to be able to put these four things together in a category. But um, there were four things that I thought of when I was thinking about Carver. If we go to the next slide. The next slide is a, another one of these tablets that's sitting there at his national birthplace. And it's too small to read, so I'll read it to you. It says, we must be patient and wait, as were the old prophets. Isaiah and the old prophets always had their ears and eyes open. You know, Isaiah, listening, heard a voice. We have so much noise now that we hear nothing but noise. It comes and goes, and that's all it is, just noise. We can't think very well now because there are so many noises of different kinds. But Isaiah heard a voice. And this is Carver, 1942, at the age of 80, saying, there's just so much noise today. We can't listen anymore. We can't hear anything. And I think, how, far, how much noisier has it gotten since 1942? And so there are ways we are, this is not to say that technology is bad. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, use my resources. And yet in doing so, we have to be careful that we don't lose touch with the natural world that he created. If you think about it, every piece of technology is a blessing, but it also takes us one step away from the direct immediacy of working with creation. Now, the years I spent doing tree work and, and spraying trees for insects and diseases, I could see the effects of the falls so very clearly, you know, anybody, I think of Andrew, others who work in agriculture, you know, you are, you look at that weather forecast, you pray for rain, you know, we are so used to flipping on the switch until your power goes out for three days and you're on a well, you're so used to flipping on a switch or turning on a faucet and out comes the water. Um, but we're, we're disconnected from the natural world around us. And it's great when we take walks in the woods. But I think even sometimes when we go on a hike or we go camping, like, do we actually stop and think? Do we actually stop and wonder? What can we learn about God from the natural world around us? And so that's why I wanted to do this as a brief little exercise. I want to go back to that. And I'm not. I'll go forward. But refer back to uh, the slide we just had. So go to the 26 there. So yeah, so here's some images for us. God says, "Go to the ant and be wise." What do we do when we see ants? We grab ant killer. You know, we we have we have this we, we have this this. I, I kill ants that are in my house. I mean, I'm not going to let ants crawl around because I want to study them crawling over my kitchen counter. You know, my my policy if it's a bug that's inside, it needs to go die or be outside. But if it's outside, you you leave it alone. You know, we have this wonderful orb-weaving yellow spider that's right on the outside of between our garage doors. and It's been there for several weeks. We, we made a family policy that spider's going to stay there just so we can watch it. Lydia's named him Oliver. Um, actually, we found it's Mrs. Oliver because Mrs. Oliver ate Mr. Oliver. We, she's, that's the, that, that kind of spider. Um, but it's been fascinating. Every time we go in the house, we look, and like the other day, she was really big, and now she's really small, and there's this like this big egg thing hanging on her spider web. And you know, the fascination is, Nathan was there, Rain was there the the day, the zipper spider, I mean, that they, 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 they zipper pattern, and And the creativity, you know, but just, I'm not saying you never kill an ant, but just recognize what our natural disposition is to the natural world around us. It's like, this is a problem that has to get solved. This is something we deal with. But have you ever actually studied an ant? And the picture on the right is uh, an ant with some aphids. And the reason this is relevant, if you've ever seen a bug's life, the queen ant's carrying this little aphid around. She's always petting it. Well, that's because ants farm aphids. Aphids are little insects that suck juices out of stems of plants. And that can weaken a plant, but the aphids produce more, they don't need everything they produce. So they secrete stuff that's sticky. If you've ever parked under certain streams of trees, you might find your car's all sticky. Sort of like the lanternflies make a mess of things. The aphids do the same thing. It's called honeydew. And this honeydew drips down. Well, they, the, the aphids don't need the sweetness, but the ants will like the sweetness. And so ants will actually, some species of ants will actually put the aphids onto a stem and they will protect, well, they all protect them from predators, but some will actually gather them <laughs> and get them on there and then just sit there and they actually call it farming or ranching the aphids. And you think, you know, go to the ant and be wise. And the, the principles that if you learn a little bit about God's world, and so this is just one example of what Carver could point to us and say, he, he's, he's all around us. And there's not only things we learn about God from these things. But there's also principles that we can often develop into greater and more useful things for our own lives. And so I'd encourage you to, to do that, to, to say, like, when's the last time I thought about something other than like, oh, that's beautiful. But like, what's that doing? Yeah. And sitting there and studying something. The next time you see a spider walk by, you know, I, I think about mosquitoes. You may have had this thought, to what was, God made all things good. So what was the purpose for mosquitoes before the fall? Maybe it felt good. <laughs> when they bit you. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I, but I think those are the kinds of things It's like, you know, mosquitoes are not inherently bad because God tells me he made all things good. So what's changed? And here's an example of the fall right in front of me. Because God didn't make a mosquito. God's original creation for mosquito was not to bite me and make me itch or to spread disease. Um, and so there's, there's just, there's a, the, none of us, no matter if we live in the smallest apartment or, or the largest piece of land, we're all surrounded by creation. And we're all surrounded. We have opportunities every single day. Whether it's a blade of grass, a cloud going by, or whatever it might be. And so next time you watch A Bug's Life and you wonder why she's carrying an aphid around, now you know. That's, uh, that's kind of like an inside joke for anybody who knows ants and aphids. But that's an example. So um, the, next, the next one, another object lesson here, slide 27. So <clears throat> it says here in Job, Elihu says, Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Um, I used an edited version of the Thinker because I I think you forgot to put clothes on, so I didn't want to put that up there. Uh, But this is the the headshot of the famous sculpture, the the Thinker. But um, stop and consider, and how often it's so. It used to be the Walkman back when we were my generation, you know, the, the the cassette Walkman that we would wear on our hips and the headphones and all that. But you know, now now it's so easy to to have constant noise inside our heads. And I do it. I listen to podcasts, and there's sermons, and there's so much discussion. There's so much good content that you could put in. But even that, sometimes you need to shut it off so you can think. Because even Christian music, that's not the end goal. It's a means to an end. And even if it's good stuff, like but just learning to stop and think. You don't, you don't make discoveries. You don't learn new things about God. And it doesn't really sink in if you never give yourself time to just stop and consider and think. So even if, if you tend to be someone who listens to a lot of things, give yourself a time. Give yourself a break from time to time. Pull it out. Pull out your Bible. Read something from Psalms or from Job or from the prophets. All these people, they lived an agrarian lifestyle. They they were connected with the world around them. And so they they did these things. And And I think Carver would, would plead with us, go do the same. There's nothing but noise. Um, and we... We live, I mean, we can't, we can't avoid some of the noise. It's just the, the era in which we live. But the noise that we can avoid, we have some control over how much noise we have in our minds and in our heads. And so I'd encourage you, follow the example that, that David would set in the Psalms or that some of the prophets would set and that Carver would encourage us to do. So that's my earbud. That's why the earbuds are there. Next one there. Um, the, the streetlights. Uh, streetlights. I hate streetlights. Streetlights. They rob us of the night sky. Um, I know they're necessary sometimes, but then I think my neighbors, they like, we live in a very rural area, and we we only have a couple neighbors, and they have a lamppost in the middle of their yard, and they light up the night sky for no reason. They, they live inside all night long. I say, why do you have to have a bright light in your yard? I came out to the country because I like the night sky. But but here's an example. Here's Orion. I didn't know Orion. I don't know my constellations very well, but I love Orion because it's a very distinct constellations, very, very, very clear in the night sky in the wintertime, January, February, March. And the prophets talk about, Job talked, 4,000 years ago, Job talked about Orion. God created Orion 6,000 years ago. Um, This little picture is the nebula. Um, I I think most constellations don't look anything like what they're supposed to look like, but I can kind of see this hunter format in Orion. And those three three stars, depending on how bright the sky is at night in the wintertime, those three stars that are sort of in a line like that, they are so hard to miss if you're looking in the right part of the sky at the right time of year. And that's the belt of Orion. But below that belt is supposed to be a little sword that hangs down. And the middle part of that sword is the nebula of Orion. And this is a picture that Dave Orfel took uh, this past winter of the the nebula of Orion. And I, I think how look up at the night sky, but ponder those are the same stars that Abraham looked at. You know, and this is what got me thinking. We can do so much to, to, like, what on this earth looks the same as it did 4,000 years ago? Absolutely nothing. Terrain changes. You know, trees are cut down. Fields are planted. Houses, houses don't last 6,000 years. Maybe the pyramids, you could say Abraham saw the pyramids. But generally speaking, man has a way of destroying, and erosion and uh, decay have a way of destroying everything on earth. But it's like God set the heavens so far out of our reach that we can't mess them up we can kind of blind ourselves to him by turning on the night lights, but God's like, this is off limits. You can't mess this up. This is my permanent testimony in the skies. And it, it gives me shivers when I think about like, I'm looking at the same night sky that Abraham looked at, that Job looked at. And Amos, there's a well-known, well, well, not so much well-known, but there's a, there's a sermon that was preached in the 1800s. And it's, it's, it was drawing on these words from Amos when he talks about Orion. And he says, you know, Amos was a shepherd. Most of the other, uh, Prophets were were priests or were some kind of official position, but Amos had grown up as a shepherd, and so he sp- would have spent a lot of time out in the night sky, laying up there looking at the stars. and And the principle that the um, the pastor was drawing on this sermon was, you know, God doesn't just keep one star in place; He holds a whole constellation of stars in place. And if you can, you can. It was, it was called trust. Learn to trust the God of Orion, that if He can hold the constellations in place throughout all. Human history, he can manage the affairs of your life. And again, looking to creation and not, you know, when you can, I mean, we don't all have the privilege. We don't all have the opportunity of living with dark night skies. Some have greater night skies than others. But still, when you have a chance, even almost in the, some of the brightest night skies, you can see Orion. And I love the fact that it's talked about in the Bible. And it's the same constellation that's in the Bible. So, another slide here. So, the, the central area, what does that have to do with anything? So think about how our habits change when we have air conditioning versus, versus when we don't. Where did people spend their time on hot summer nights when they didn't have air conditioning? And what did they do? They either opened their windows or they slept outside. I had a friend who grew up in the, in Brooklyn outside of Baltimore City, and he said those hot summer nights when he was a kid. He slept on the back porch because it was just too beastly hot inside without fans, without electric, with, we had electricity. But... You know, so your, your habits change, but when you're outside or where you're sitting there, when you open your windows, even in the evenings or you sit on your front porch and you listen and you watch, you're in creation. But we get in, so we tend to get inside and, you know, the windows never open and the air conditioner's always on or the central heat's always on. And I'm not knocking these things. I'm not saying technology's bad, but I'm saying these are how we get affected by these things without even realizing it. And so you have to maybe intentionally compensate for that to go out and sit. And to listen and to consider, and to watch and to study—these are not things that we're good at in our in our generation in our society. Um, so these modern conveniences—you know—as as last night as I was getting this ready, I had the windows open, and I could just like, what is that smell? Sarah, <laughs> best like, somebody leave the trash out? And I realized that our Amish neighbors were drying the tobacco, and the smell was just wafting in. And if you've ever smelled drying tobacco, it smells like a burnt stale cigarette and it was a lot of it because the fields are, are ripe and they just cut a lot of tobacco and but there's a smell like that's not my favorite smell um but the smells and getting getting you thinking about like you know okay what what does god want with tobacco what are the purposes for tobacco um and hearing the crickets you know it's not just the my favorite thing it's not just hearing the one cricket it's when you can tell they're talking to each other and the one makes the noise over here and the other one like on the other side of the yard makes a noise over there and just that chorus of of insect the insect symphony that we don't hear if we're inside in the air conditioning. And so, again, taking the time to consider and making these intentional steps to look at nature. Um, go to slide 30. And, and I mentioned it, it wasn't always like this. We, were, we used to be, our, our, our ancestors, our Christian ancestors, used to have more of awareness and more. They would contemplate creation and nature more. So Francis Scott Key, in 1841, wrote a poem called The Worm's Death Song. What is all that about? So he's writing about a caterpillar and a butterfly. And I'm not going to take the time. He wasn't the best poet. I'll grant that. But he he sees a parallel between the worm, the the caterpillar going into the cocoon and coming out a butterfly. And in that, he sees a picture of ourselves in, in this life and in the next life. And these are a couple lines from that poem that Key wrote. He said, in this shroud I make, speaking first person as a, as a caterpillar, in this shroud I make, this creeping frame shall peacefully die away. But its death will be new life to me in the midst of its perished clay. And he says, I will not touch the dusty earth. He's not gonna, the caterpillar's not going to crawl on the earth anymore. I'll not touch this dusty earth. I'll spring to the brightening sky. And free as the breeze wherever I please. On joyous wing I'll fly. But then the caterpillar stops, and he turns, and he says, Now, if any mortals, any humans are listening, this is the lesson they should pick up. This is the lesson I want them to take. And the caterpillar talks to us, and he says, Then let them, like me, make ready their shrouds, nor shrink from the mortal strife. And like me they shall sing, as to heaven they spring. Death is not the end of life. And so there's a metaphor right there in front of you when you see a caterpillar shedding its outer form and dying and coming to life again as a butterfly. The next slide. uh, Actually, back up there. You can stay there for a second. This other one is something I just came across by a Puritan named John Flavel from 1669. He wrote a series of little essays called Husbandry Spiritualized. And that's not not talking about being a husband, but about husbandry as being a farmer or a gardener. And he has all these little snippets of or the heavenly use of earthly things in which husbandmen or gardeners are directed to an excellent improvement of their common employments, where occasional meditations upon birds and beasts and trees and flowers are added. So this was something that was done throughout church history. They looked at creation. They said, what can we learn about this? What can we learn about when you graft a tree? What can we learn about how weeds tend to take over bare soil and nature hates bare soil? If you have bare soil, it won't stay bare for long. It'll get colonized by weeds, probably not by good plants that you want. But it will co- and so the, what does that tell us? What does that tell you about, like, your own heart? That nature, our nature, does not, like, it will be, our, our souls will be filled with something. What is it going to be filled with? Now you can go to the next slide there. So Matthew Maury was another Christian from the 18, 1800s, and he is known as the father of oceanography he was recovering from illness, a broken leg at one point in time. He was in, in the Navy. And he was reading in Psalm 8, and it said something about whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And he said, huh, what's that all about, the paths of the seas. And that launches him on an investigation and a study, and he finds all these ocean currents throughout the world, and he revolutionizes navigation because he said the Bible talks about paths of the seas. What's the, what does this mean? And he finds that there are these rivers, basically, that flow through the oceans. And they said that until his discovery of these things, it took 180 days to sail from New York to San Francisco because you had to sail around South America. But after he discovered that, the trip after, he would take like 50 days off that trip because he found that there were paths in the seas. And he did that by reading Psalm 8 and paying attention and not letting things go out and not, not forgetting things. And so this is what Maury says in 1860. He says, When your men of science, with vain and hasty conceit, announce the discovery of disagreement between science and the Bible, rely upon it, the fault is not with the witness of his records, but with the worm who essays to interpret evidence which he does not understand. So, next time you think science disproved the Bible, it's like, no, the Bible's right. Science doesn't have it right yet. In time, the Bible will be proven to be true. And it over and over and over again. So, getting back to Carver, having spent a little bit of time on practical application, getting back to Carver. Carver would write this as an older man. He said, as a very small boy exploring the almost virgin woods of the old Carver place, I had the impression someone had just been there ahead of me. Things were so orderly, so clean, so harmoniously beautiful. A few years later, in the same woods, I was to understand the meaning of this impression because I was practically overwhelmed with the sense of some great presence. Not only had someone been there, someone was there. Years later, when I read in the scriptures, in him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, I knew what the writer meant. Never since have I been without this consciousness of the creator speaking to me. The out of doors has been to me more and more a great cathedral in which God could be continuously spoken to and heard from. Man who needed a purpose, a mission to keep him alive, had one. He could be God's co-worker. My attitude toward life was also my attitude toward science. Jesus said one must be born again, must become as a little child. He must let go. He must let no laziness, no fear, no stubbornness keep him from his duty. If he were born again, he would see life from such a plane. He would have the energy not to be impeded in his duty by these various sidetrackers and inhibitions. My work, my life must be in the spirit of a little child seeking only to know the truth and follow it. My purpose alone must be God's purpose to increase the welfare and happiness of his people. Nature will not permit a vacuum. It will be filled with something. Human need is really a great spiritual vacuum which God seeks to fill. With one hand in the hand of a fellow man in need and the other in the hand of Christ, he could get across the vacuum and I became an agent. Then the passage, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, came to have real meaning. As I worked on projects which fulfilled a real human need, forces were working through me which amazed me. I would often go to sleep with an apparently insoluble problem, but when I woke, the answer was there. So why should we who believe in Christ be so surprised at what God can do with a willing man in a laboratory? Some things must be baffling to the critic who has never been born again. By nature, I am a conserver. I have found nature to be a conserver. Nothing is wasted or permanently lost in nature. Things change their form, but they do not cease to exist. After I leave this world, I do not believe I am through. God would be a bigger fool than even a man if he did not conserve what seems to be the most important thing he has yet done in the universe. This kind of reasoning may help the young. When you get your grip on the last rung of the ladder, as he's getting older in life, and look over the wall, as I now am doing, you don't need their proofs. You see, you know, you will not die. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this window into a life of a man who followed you and used his natural interests and abilities and your gifting to introduce people to your creation and I pray that his voice as he was complaining of noise in the 1940s it would speak to us today that there's so much noise around us we don't even realize that it's noise and we don't realize how affected we are by our society and by the speed of life and by the noise and by the overwhelming amount of sights so I trust even this afternoon if we could just go out and sit in the backyard and watch creation and look through it. Like he said, with eyes that have been born again, what are you teaching us through the thousands of things you've made through the trees, the rocks, the skies, the seas, the butterflies, the caterpillars, the ants, the wasps, the hornets, the yellow jackets, everything in between. What are you teaching us? What do you want us to learn about ourselves and about you? And I just thank you for how Paul tells us that your, your deity and your omnipotence can be clearly thing seen in the things you've made. And just because we are sinful doesn't mean we can't read from the book of nature. That you've still given it as a book for us to read from. And with your special revelation of the scriptures, we can read nature properly. But it's still a book that we should read and we should read frequently and get better at reading. Again, we thank you for the life of this man. We trust the rest of this day's activities to you. And look forward to uh, the discoveries you'll give us in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.